Well, for our scripture reading, if you'll please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew in the third chapter, Matthew chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me uh, thank the ladies this morning for accompanying us. You notice the ladies up here uh, playing along with the piano, uh, lady at the piano, and, and you thought there were only two people on the stage over here. There were actually four because each of those ladies is expecting. <laughs> so we had a little choir on the stage here this morning. And I'm thankful for all those that participate that way and uh, add to our service, bringing their gifts. And I appreciate that so much. Matthew chapter 3. I'd like to read a passage this morning that helps us to continue in our series on highlights in the life of Christ. Read a familiar portion of scripture to you, no doubt, beginning in the 13th verse of Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Lord, would you help us in these few moments that we have as we examine together the continuing work of your Son, during his earthly ministry. I pray that today our estimation of Jesus would only make him bigger and bigger in our eyes. And we would give him his appropriate place. In Jesus' name, amen. The door to the carpenter's shop swung shut for the last time. Never again would children on their way home from school, drawn by the irresistible charm of the carpenter, pause to listen to one of his inimitable stories. Leaving the humble cottage, Jesus made his way toward the River Jordan where unprecedented crowds were flocking. Unostentatiously pressing his way through the milling crowds, seeking baptism at the hand of the prophet, the carpenter humbly took his place among the candidates. Thus writes J. Oswald Sanders in his great work, The Incomparable Christ. It's a fitting description. After 30 years of silence, Jesus closed up his shop and went to the Jordan to be baptized, and that changed everything. 
what happened next in Jesus' life was truly unique, and it was truly unique in the history of baptisms. This baptism was unlike any other. Not only for what happened during it, but also why it was done. The baptism of Christ has captured the attention of Christians for centuries. However, I feel there is great confusion about this event. It's noted by the fact that many feel as if this was just an example to follow, that the the basis of Jesus' baptism is just that we are to be baptized like that as well. And well-meaning people, and perhaps myself on occasion, have made comments like this, well, you just need to follow the Lord in baptism. Is that merely why Jesus was baptized? It was an example for us to follow. This morning, I would like to dispel that notion that there was no no baptism like this before Jesus, nor has there been since. In fact, there's a profound significance in the baptism of Christ. So this morning, in looking at the highlights of Jesus, I want to focus on the baptism of Christ. Why was it performed? What is its significance? And what connection might it have with baptism today? You might think, being in a Baptist church, that this is all we talk about. But it's not. But today affords us to take some time and discover the profound significance of Jesus' baptism and what it has to do with us today. Just two things, if you're taking notes this morning and you want to kind of follow along, you can hang your thought on these. We're going to look at the setting of this baptism. We need to know when this occurred, exactly what occurred to make sure we understand what's being communicated. And then we're going to end this morning with the significance of this. What's so significant about it that three of the gospel writers record it? Why is it so important? So this morning I want us to begin simply by noting the setting of Jesus' baptism. And in this setting we're going to note first of all that this took place during the ministry of John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist? Well, undoubtedly you've heard his name, but did you know that this was actually the cousin of Jesus? John's mother and Jesus' mother were related, and this would make them cousins. In fact, according to Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, we know that they were similar in age, John and Jesus. John was about six months older than Jesus. And Jesus had some amazing things to say about John the Baptist. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said of John the Baptist that there has not been a greater born among women. Now, how many of you were born of a woman? Everybody that's ever walked this planet. And Jesus says, there's not been anyone greater up to that point than John the Baptist. That's a significant statement. 
The reason that Jesus was making that statement is because John would stand at the end of of a series of great prophets of God. And John himself had the privilege of being the prophet that would introduce the greatest of prophets, the Messiah, to the nation. And John himself had that privilege. So John is the greatest of prophets in Jesus' understanding. He was Jesus' cousin, and John, at this point, was baptizing. If you look back at verse 5 of Matthew chapter 3, we're told that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him. This was his ministry. He was performing this baptism. Where did he do this? Well, according to John chapter 1 and verse 28, it was in the Jordan River near Bethany. Here's a picture of the Jordan River. I didn't get the pictures that have the you know, publicized site where everyone wants to get baptized in the Jordan, and they've kind of made a commercial venture out of it. But this is a picture of the Jordan River. I'm not exactly sure where, but it's before it was developed, and so maybe this would give you a sense of what it was kind of like. It's not a very large river. It's actually quite small. And John was baptizing by the Jordan. Now, why was he baptizing? Well, again, we're told in verse 6 that people came, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, and they were confessing their sins. In fact, down in verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for what? For what? Repentance. What is repentance? Repentance means to change your mind, to turn from something, turn a different way. In Mark 1 and Luke 3, this is referred to as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This baptism, this water baptism that John was engaging in was an outward expression of an inner heart attitude. And that heart attitude is one of repentance. It's turning, it's acknowledging my sin and turning from that. And this is the kind of baptism that John was engaged in. Now, why was he doing that? Well, if you keep reading in the context, look at verse 7 of Matthew 3. We're told that when he, that is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Who are the Pharisees and Sadducees? These were the religious leaders of the day. These are the pastors. These are the prophets themselves. They are the the, the men of the Bible. And they're coming to John. However, their approach is different. Look at what he says to them in verse 7. He said to them, you brood of vipers... Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Let me explain that to you. John is baptizing, and he's baptizing for repentance. But you had these religious leaders... And here was their estimation. We are descendants of Abraham. We are God's chosen. We don't need this repentance. 
God is pleased with us simply being children of Abraham, and therefore we receive all of his blessing. And John puts his finger on this and says, no, no, no. You brood of vipers, you misunderstand. You need repentance just like anybody else. You must turn from your sin and prepare for the kingdom is coming. The Messiah is coming. So John was not baptizing these Pharisees because they were not willing to acknowledge their need of repentance. But John explains to them that being children of Abraham is not enough. And so this is what is taking place. Jesus comes during the ministry of John the Baptist, and here is the baptism that he is performing, that people would receive his message, acknowledge their sinfulness, be turning from that, publicly recognizing that in the waters of the Jordan. This is now a map of Jesus coming to this baptism. And here's what I want you to note about this map. You see the orange line there? It begins in Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. Remember the story I gave at the beginning that Sanders talks about him leaving his carpenter shop one day and now traveling to the Jordan? That's that orange line. Would have been about a day's journey or more. We, we think that's the place where the baptism was taking place. Can't be sure. This is as good a guess as any. The green line is where Jesus went after his baptism into the wilderness to be tempted. We'll look at that next week, Lord willing. But here's what happened. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and he was in that carpenter shop, as it were, for how long do you think? Well, we don't need to guess because, let me give you this point. This is ending the silent years of Jesus. This is when this took place. According to Luke chapter 3, Jesus was about 30 years old when he was baptized. 30 years. Now, according to the Gospels, the only inspired record of Jesus' early years are these. We read of his birth in Bethlehem, the family's flight to Egypt to escape Herod's persecution. They're then returned to Nazareth, All this time, the child's an infant. Jesus is an infant. Uh, Maybe into toddler years. After that, then you read of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, which speaks of him being 12 years old. And he's in Jerusalem, and it's there that he's astounding the religious leaders with what he knows. And aside from those events, you have nothing else recorded about Jesus' life for 30 years. And it's often referred to as the 30 years of silence. Because we don't know what happened to Jesus outside of those events during those 30 years. But imagine, who is Jesus? He is God come in the flesh. And yet, God coming in the flesh waited, as it were, for 30 years to break up on the public stage. These are 30 years of obscurity, waiting for the Father's timing when finally his private 
life would become public. In the last three years of his life, it would be very public in proclaiming what is true. What do we know about those 30 years? Well, as I said, we don't know much, but this baptism is going to teach us something about those years. We'll look at that in a moment. So Jesus traveled from Galilee, Nazareth, that town, to the Jordan. It was about a day's journey, and he did so to be baptized by John, and that was the signal ending of the silent years of Jesus. What would happen after that? Thirdly, in this setting, there would be now the initiation of three years of public ministry. Now, silence gives way to speech, privacy to publicity, and submission to human authorities, to authoritative teaching and deeds. And right in the middle between those two extremes is this baptism. It's significant for no other reason than that. What was it here at this baptism that now initiated this three years of public ministry that we read of in the Gospels? Well, we're going to look at the significance of the baptism next. But before I do, let me just apply this in this way. Do you think Jesus ever grew impatient in those 30 years? When is this going to start? When will the ministry begin? I don't think so. In fact, I'm pretty sure he didn't. He was willing to work even in silent seclusion, being faithful to his Father in everyday simple things until it came the Father's time to initiate a more public ministry. Now, do you ever grow impatient with God's timing? You ever wonder how long must I wait? Why hasn't this happened already? Has God forgotten about me? I just want to remind you, this by example, Jesus himself demonstrated a complete contentment in silent ministry for 30 years. And so should we. This is the setting of the baptism of Jesus But really, we want to spend our time this morning on the significance of this baptism. What is significant about it? I have three things for you that we're going to look at, and they correspond really to the three members of the Trinity that are all involved in this baptism. Hopefully you noted that as we read along. It speaks of, of Jesus in verse 16 of Matthew 3. He's the one being baptized. Also in verse 16, there's the Holy Spirit who is descending upon him. And in verse 17, you have this voice from heaven. It's the voice of God the Father. This is my beloved Son. This is one of those rich Trinitarian passages in the New Testament. It speaks of Father and Son and Spirit, distinct in person, yet one in essence, all of them being deity. And here, they're all interested in what's taking place in the river Jordan. And they all have a part. 
And so what is the significance? We're actually going to look at them backward in reverse order in the way that they happened. I want us to note, first of all, the statement of the Father in verse 17. When Jesus comes up out of the water, having been immersed in the Jordan, we're told in verse 17, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here's a statement of the Father. And what is this statement to signify? This is my beloved Son, with him I am well pleased. Well, I suggest to you that this statement is actually a confirmation of Jesus' sinless life. This baptism, this corresponding statement after this took place, was actually the confirmation from heaven that those 30 years of silence were 30 years of sinless silence. This is my son. Everything he's done has been well-pleasing. Why do I say that? Well, I think this is actually a reference that kind of refers us back to an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. I have it on the screen, but you can turn there if you like to Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 42, we read this. The book of Isaiah, the prophet, gives to us in Isaiah four servant songs. We've read these on Wednesday night. We've looked at them a little bit. We've We've noted the last of them as we observe the Lord's table together. And there are four times in the prophet Isaiah that Isaiah speaks of the servant of the Lord. This is a special, unique servant of the Lord that will do his will. And in Isaiah 42, I want to remind you, this is 800 years before Jesus ever lived. Here's what the prophet Isaiah would say. God says, behold, my servant, whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Here's God's estimation of this one that would be his servant to accomplish his will. He is uniquely chosen, and he is uniquely delighted in by the Father. And this would be his character. And then notice what it says, I have put my spirit, Spirit upon him. That's exactly what we're going to read of in Matthew chapter 3, that one of the aspects of Jesus being baptized was the Spirit descending upon him. And this is obviously a fulfillment of Isaiah 42. Here is the chosen, chosen one who is choice in whom God delights. The Spirit of God will be put upon him, and look at what he will do. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, how do you think that might happen? If someone is going to come and bring absolute justice to the nations, you would tend to think that would come in terms of a judgment. In other words, you might think of it in terms of Marxist thinking. Marxist thinking is this. There's always injustice in the culture, and the only way to bring about justice is through revolution and uprising. So let's have revolution and uprising that we might overthrow the powers that be to bring about true justice. 
by the way, that's being propagated in many an institution in our land. But the scripture says this, there's going to be a servant of the Lord, the one whom God has chosen and whom he delights. He will have the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring justice to the nations. Now look, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. In other words, he's not going to come initially with this iron fist. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, but he will faithfully bring forth justice. What this is speaking of is the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to bring justice or righteousness. The first time, how's he going to do it? Not by uprising. There's going to be something else. Later on in the passage, I didn't put it on the screen for you, but it talks about him releasing the captives. People that are bound and now are released. This is referring to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you go back to Matthew chapter 3 and you read this exclamation of this voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is God the Father putting his stamp of approval on the son. For 30 years, he has lived a perfectly sinless life. He is my chosen instrument. As Israel should have been the one in whom my soul delights and failed, this is the true one. He is the Messiah. The Spirit is upon him. He will accomplish all of my will. What I find interesting is this. This wasn't the only time that a voice came from heaven to Jesus. There were two other times. Do you remember what they were? Well, look at one of them. There was one at the time of transfiguration when Jesus was on the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John. Similar statement. There was also the time in John chapter 12 when it was really coming to the end of the Lord's public ministry and he was going to face great persecution. And it says some people thought it thundered, but there was this voice from heaven that said very similar things. Now, in all of those instances, who heard this voice? Okay, you're looking at Matthew 3. Look at it with me again. We're told, verse 17, there was a voice from heaven that said this. Who do you think heard that voice? Do you think everybody heard that voice? I don't know. But I'm sure of this. I'm sure John the Baptist heard it. And I'm also sure that Jesus heard it. And if anything, we can say that this confirmation of Jesus' sinless life in Jesus' humanity was partially for him, for Jesus. Why is that? Well, consequently to this, you're going to have people that reject Jesus. Oh, they'll be excited about some of the things that he's doing and the things that he's saying. But in the end, three years from now, they're going to be crying out, crucify him. He's a sinner. He's a blasphemer. 
And at this point, setting out in his public ministry, what you have is the father, in my estimation, ministering encouragement to Jesus and saying, you are my beloved son. You are my chosen servant. My soul delights in you. You're accomplishing all of my will. This encouragement was for the son and in his humanity, soon to be rejected by all. None of that mattered because he had the favor of his father in heaven. And that's what mattered. Again, let me just apply that in this way. Do you recognize the power of your words? Jesus, in his humanity, was ministered to encouragement from the words from the Father. Parents, do you recognize the power of your words with your children? Power to do great harm, spoken in anger. Power to encourage and to heal. If the earthly Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity would have been encouraged by the words of his Father, how much more should we offering encouraging words to those who need it? These words of God were confirming the sinless life of Jesus, that he had lived an entirely, completely acceptable, sinless life for 30 years. But secondly, I want you to note this about the significance of the baptism. The baptism was the coronation of a king. Verse 16 of Matthew 3, When Jesus was baptized, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Here's the Spirit descending like a dove. And if you look, people have tried to portray this artistically, portray it artistically, and and then all kinds of things. And it's always a literal dove coming down to light upon the head of Jesus. That may be the case, but if you look at all the text together, it simply says the Spirit descended like a dove. It could be like a dove would. So you imagine a dove kind of fluttering down and landing. It doesn't mean necessarily there was an actual literal dove. There may have been. But either way, it's signifying something more than just this dove. It is the Spirit, the second or the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, in some visible way, gently descending from heaven and lighting and remaining on Jesus. This is what took place. Now, why did this happen? Why was it important that this take place? Well, it's the idea of an anointing. In the Old Testament, you had people in different offices that were anointed for those offices. There were three in particular. There was the office of a king. And there would be the example of someone to anoint a king with oil, saying that really God's spirit was upon them to perform the office. You would do that in the case of a prophet. A prophet was often anointed with oil. And, and, and they would be say, said to be spokespersons for God. And so God would come upon them and they would minister God's words to God's people. They would do this with the priests. 
And the priests were set aside and consecrated. And so the Holy Spirit was given to the priests. And they themselves would be able to minister on behalf of man before God. And that was their office. And all of these it was necessary that they would do this in order that they might serve in the power of the Spirit of God to fulfill their role. And so now you have Jesus at his baptism. And he, in a special way, is given the Spirit of God. What does this say about him? Well, look at John's Gospel. Look at John chapter 1. Turn forward in your Bible. And what we're reading now is after Jesus' baptism. Okay, The baptism has already taken place. Look at verse 28. Uh, We're told these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Okay, What is these things is referring back to the testimony of John the Baptist about who Jesus is. It says the next day after John gives this testimony, verse 29, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does John know that about Jesus? Verse 30, John says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. In other words, what John is saying is this. It's not that he wasn't acquainted with Jesus, but what he's saying is, I didn't fully grasp who Jesus was in all of that significance, but I went out to baptize as God commanded me that it might be shown who Jesus really is. So look at verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him. Again, I, I, I didn't know him in this way. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Here's what John is saying. After this baptism event, he says, When I saw the Spirit come from heaven and remain on Jesus, I then knew exactly who he was the Lamb of God, the Son of God, that would take away the sin of the world. This was the identifier by which John was unmistakable about the person of Jesus and what he had come to do. The Holy Spirit remaining on him. And again, this was spoken of in the Old Testament. Go back to Matthew chapter 3. We're told that the Spirit of God descends like a dove and comes to rest on Jesus in order to anoint him, equip him for ministry. This is the Messiah. This is the King. This is the true prophet. This is the faithful priest we've been waiting for. This is him. He receives the Spirit, as it were, without measure, that he might perform the work of his Father in the earth. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. 
Look at Isaiah 61 on the screen. Again, this is 800 years before Jesus lives, and this is speaking about Jesus. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This was Jesus' beginning of public ministry that he might speak the truth of the gospel to people that would hear him. And it would release people from their prison. People bound in sin and trapped in their sin. Here's the one in the power of the Spirit that proclaims liberty to those people. Now honestly, have you ever felt trapped in your sin? You have felt bound. As much as I don't want to, I find myself there. God sent his son. It was testified in his public baptism that he sent his son completely filled with the Holy Spirit that he would proclaim liberty to people trapped in their sin. And it's only through him. How did this happen? What did Jesus do since he was received the Spirit? He was the true anointed one. Well, look at what John 3.34 says. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. There it's speaking of Jesus, and it's talking about God the Father gave him the Holy Spirit without measure. In other words, he had all the Spirit, what he did was in the power of the Spirit because he was the perfectly holy human Son of God. And what did Jesus do with that Spirit? Matthew 12, 28, Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You can see what he says. I have the Spirit of God, just like Isaiah said. And it's by that Spirit of God that he cast out demons on the earth. And what he's saying is, it demonstrates my kingship. I have power even over the powers of darkness to cast them out. The kingdom of God is here. We're told this in Acts chapter 10, verse 37. Peter says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Okay, stop right there. When did God anoint Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit? You tell me. At his baptism. And after that, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. What does this tell us? That the baptism was the coronation of the king. That Jesus received the Holy Spirit without measure. And all that he did on this earth, humanly speaking, was in the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, Jesus did all those miracles because he's God. That's absolutely true. But the Bible tells you those miracles that he was doing, he did them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And it served as an example. What's the example? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ today, 
by faith, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit becomes your resident. He indwells you. It doesn't mean that you perform miracles like Jesus did, but what it does mean is this, that you ought to serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls it being filled with the Spirit or walking by the Spirit. That your relationship to Him day to day is key to overcoming your fallen, sinful flesh and fulfilling God's will in your life. Jesus ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit, being given the Spirit without measure, and so should we. Finally, I want you to note this about the baptism of Jesus. It was an identification with sinners. And this is probably the question you have about the text. Go back to Matthew 3. We noted that this was a baptism of repentance. John says this in verse 11. The people were coming confessing their sins in verse 6. But does Jesus have anything to confess? The voice from heaven says, you're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. These 30 years of silence, you have pleased me in every single area. There's nothing to confess. And this is John's question. Look at verse 14. John was trying to prevent Jesus saying, wait, I need to be baptized by you. What's John confessing by that? I'm a sinner. And remember what Jesus said about John? Among those born of women, there's none greater. And yet John the Baptist himself said, but I'm still a sinner and I need to be baptized by you. And he says, Jesus, this doesn't fit the picture. Nevertheless, the Lord says to him, verse 15, let it be so. John, we must do this. Why? Here's the answer. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. We must do this to accomplish righteousness. This is a picture of fulfilling righteousness. What is the righteousness to be completed? Here's what's taking place. Jesus, the sinless man, 30 years, it's been demonstrated, it's approved by the Father. He now comes and identifies with sinful human beings. He has solidarity with them. He identifies with them in the baptismal waters. And what he's doing is he's painting a picture of what he will do. The sinless Son of God will take on all the sin that needs to be repented of and he will deal with it. How will he deal with it? By himself being baptized, as it were. Look at this verse. Jesus says later in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You know what Jesus is speaking of there? Not water baptism. He's speaking of his death on the cross. 
He's saying, I have this identification that I must fulfill. That is, I will take solidarity with sinners, those who are sinful and need repentance. I will take their place, identify with them, and I will pay their price. Their price is death. And I will take that penalty that they might walk in newness of life, that they might be set free from their sin, that they might be righteous. The righteous man who lived 30 years perfectly righteous is displaying an exchange in his baptism. I will give my perfect life for you and pay your debt that you will be having righteousness before God. John, let's do this. We must paint the picture. This is showing what I will do. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that you deserve separation and death because you're a sinner? That's a just penalty of God. But that the only human being who ever lived that didn't deserve that penalty, Jesus Christ, he took that for you. He identified with you in that and willingly bore your sin in his body, as the scripture says, and that he died in your place. that you would get his perfect record. That you would be able to be accounted righteous before God. That happens by faith and faith alone, belief in what the Son of God has done on our behalf. And his baptism paints the picture beautifully. So what does this mean for us? There's two points of application and conclusion. The first is this. The baptism of Jesus is a foreshadowing of the time when he would die for our sin and make many righteous. It's a picture, like baptism always is. But that is why, my friends, like I said at the beginning of the service, we should not talk about following the Lord and believers' baptism because our baptism doesn't mean that. This was unique. This is what Jesus would do. And he's picturing it at the beginning of his public ministry. Jesus' baptism is an act of humility. He consents to be counted a sinner, paying that full price. It's as Paul would say in Corinthians, for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And it's all portrayed in this act. So the question for you this morning is, have you put your full confidence in what Jesus has done for you? Have you believed in Jesus that way? Secondly, I want us to note this. Jesus identified with us in the baptism of John. We identify with him in Christian baptism. What does that baptism have to do with ours? Well, as it was an identification with us to take our sin and bear them, when you come to faith in Christ, what you're saying is, 
I am now one with Christ. I identify with Jesus. I've admitted that I was a sinner. And I believe that when Jesus died, he died not for himself, he died for me. And coming up out of the water, what I'm saying is, because that is true, I've been set free from my sin to live in a different way. He set me free that I might live for him. And that's the picture that we paint in the water of baptism. Have you ever publicly identified with Jesus in that way? This is what Jesus said. He told his followers, go and make disciples, make followers of me. And once they come to me by faith and believe in me, you are to baptize them. Encourage them to make this public identification with me. And then teach them everything that I've commanded you. Have you ever done that? Have you ever obeyed the Lord in that? That would be the thing to do. To let people know that. But I want to end with this. Back in Matthew chapter 3, there's just one other thing in the text I want to deal with and we'll be done. Matthew 3, verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Now notice this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and fire. What does that mean? Well, to know what it means, you've got to keep reading. Look at verse 12. Speaking of this one who will baptize in this way, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. He's using a farming analogy, right? He's talking about a threshing floor where they would hammer out the wheat and and separate the the kernel from the chaff, what is good from what is not good. And he says he's going to come to that threshing floor and he's going to sort everything out, what is good and what isn't. And notice what he'll do at the end of verse 12. He'll gather his wheat, that which is good, into his barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire So what is it to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Those who are baptized or identified with the Holy Spirit, they're like the wheat gathered into the barn. The people that follow Jesus Christ and believe in him receive the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I'm the one baptizing with the Spirit. And it's like those are the people that are genuinely saved and forgiven and made righteous because of what I've done. They'll be gathered into the barn. But notice it says that he will also baptize with fire, the end of verse 11. And it says the chaff he'll burn with fire. He will also be the judge at the end of the world for those who have rejected him. And they will face the fire of damnation. And what John is saying is, there's one coming, Jesus, and according to what you do with him, it separates all of humanity into one of two categories. 
Either you know him, you've been baptized with the Spirit. What that means is you're truly regenerate. You're placed into the body of Christ, and therefore you will be gathered into the barn. Or you reject him, and you'll face him as your judge and experience unquenchable fire. And the baptism now is going to demonstrate this is the person you need to pay attention to. This is the anointed of God. Look at the spirit upon him. Hear the father's voice to him. Don't reject him. How about you? Have you received Christ this way? Do you know him like this? Have you rejected him? Let's bow together and pray. Father, thank you for the record of revelation and what took place that day along the Jordan. Has demonstrated who Jesus is and what he has done and what he came to do. Thank you that we of all people are most privileged to have this recorded for us in our language. Pray that we would accept the responsibility of it. Lord, I ask that there's anyone here today who has never seen Jesus like this and what he has come to do. That today they would be given a heart to believe. They would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Their eyes would be opened. And you would draw them through your word. And you would do it for your name's sake. Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you have questions about what we looked at, I hope you'll see me afterwards. Maybe God has spoken to your heart and you need to know more. I'd love to spend some time with you getting to know you. But I want us to close this morning by singing of a hymn we've already sung about Jesus. You know, when I was studying that this week, Honestly, that really was like in my eyes, Jesus was bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, I mean, all that he's fulfilling, all that he came to do, all that this event signified. I did kind of feel like I wish I had not one but a thousand tongues to proclaim what Jesus has done. And if that's you today, and you know who you are, children of God, sing this like that, would you? I wish I had a thousand tongues to speak of what Jesus did for me. His glories, the triumph of his grace. So sing it out as we close this morning. Let's stand, please.